Before we get going, one quick thing. As we were editing the podcast, we realized that there was uh, some background noise that filtered through onto the audio, which lasts uh, through until about the eight-minute mark here. Uh, outside our office, there's just a lot of construction going on, and a lot of our gear is actually not with us right now. It, it's on set that we usually record with, so uh, we're using an H2N recorder here today, and it just it's picking up all the ambient noise. So I apologize if there's a little bit of distraction uh, during the uh, first six minutes. Okay, here we go. On with the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Business of Film. This is episode number 69. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. This week, we have Justin McConnell here. Uh, he runs a company here locally in Toronto called Unstable Ground. Uh, I recently worked with Justin on a project. That's how I got to know him. Uh, he is an awesome dude, and he's got just a lot of industry knowledge to share. Wears a number of different hats, which we get a chance to talk about in this episode, but there's there's something really special that I, I want to highlight about this episode in particular. We talk a lot about making that first step uh, here with Justin, kind of have his transition from from moving from just starting out in the business to making his first film, how he went about monetizing that, uh, different kinds of distribution deals that he encountered and that people should be thinking about, and then kind of moving forward uh, to his first decision to go to Cannes this year. So. There's just a lot of really interesting uh, touch points that we get to talk about here on this episode, and I'm really happy that Justin was able to come on on the show and feel open enough to you know to go into some of that that nitty gritty detail uh, that we love to get into here on the business of film. Uh, for those that are listening to this episode, please note it is an explicit episode. Uh, we do use uh, some uh, some language that may not be suitable for some listeners. So if you're in the car with kids, uh, please don't listen to this episode in the car with kids. Uh, other than that, uh, I uh, just want to thank everybody for listening. I really appreciate uh, everybody who has taken an opportunity to just drop us a, a review or send us a note, uh, either on Twitter or on iTunes. If you are on, on iTunes, uh, please do push that subscribe button, uh, send us a, or put a, post a comment there uh, if you are so inclined. It, uh, it, it really makes a big difference for us here at the show, keeps us passionate, motivated to keep on going, knowing that there are, are people like you who are out there who are listening and enjoying this. So uh, please do take the time, if you're so inclined, to uh, drop us a few stars and a note there on iTunes. And uh, without further ado, I welcome Justin McConnell to this episode of Business of Film. I'm here today. Uh, this is episode number 69 with my good friend, Justin McConnell. Justin, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Am I really episode 69? Yeah, you really are. <laughs> yes, you that's, really are. Uh, that's great. Okay, well, um, you really thanks. are. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, Justin, how I love thee. Um, so tell tell our audience a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, where to start? Okay, I'm a producer-director based in Toronto, Canada. Um, I've got a bunch of feature films under my belt, most of them documentaries, although I made a horror film in 2000. I shot it in 2010. It came out in 2012 called The Collapsed uh, that Anchor Bay put out in three territories and Lionsgate put out in the UK, and it sold like 14, 15 territories around the world. Uh, anyway, um, I, since then, I've sort of gotten, uh, even though I'm still producing and uh, still trying to get a bunch of projects off the ground, um, uh, for example, recently I worked with Jesse here, on a film called Coldback that we've just completed. Um, I was an executive producer on it. Jesse was a producer. Uh, that's sort of how we know each other. 
but I got more into the world of uh, sales and programming um, and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm now a programmer at Toronto After Dark Film Festival. I uh, work for two different distribution companies. I, I do acquisitions for IndyCan Entertainment, which is uh, Abby Fettergreen's distribution company here in Canada. We now now do North America, but we were for a while just focusing on Canada, uh, as well as Raven Banner Entertainment. I do acquisition scouting for them um, for international and uh, other types of titles. Um, I run a short film festival monthly with Rumor Magazine called Little Terrors, where I play genre shorts, um, and uh, I do post-production work, uh, trailer editing, and um, DVD Blu-ray authoring for a whole bunch of companies. So you're and one of those, pretty, yeah, you're, you're one of those what they call multifaceted saying, um, guys. Yeah, multi. I, I like, I prefer to saying um, jack of all trades, master of none. Right. Uh, which, <laughs> um, I, I, don't, I don't know, nobody's the master of anything, right? But I hate to be bored. So yeah. I've kind of taken up a lot of jobs because what I found is that when I sit in the meeting to try to get a project off the ground, that conversation can stop dead quite often. But if you also say, so what can I do for you in these sort of avenues, people continue talking to you and you build a relationship because you're able to sort of work both sides of the fence. Yeah, you can build a relationship because you not only are, say, bringing content to the table, but you are also yep. providing a genuine service that people want. And sometimes you need to start the relationship somewhere. So I, I can definitely see how that is not only uh, an asset, but a very valuable thing uh, for you. Now, I, there, there, there's so many things there that, that I want to unpack and talk about here on the show. Uh, sure. the, 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 the first of which is, let's let's go back to I guess one of the first things that you said there which is that first feature film that you put together uh-huh. uh, I believe it was called The Collapsed right that you had done yes. uh, just tell our audience a little bit about that wh- how you put it together what the scope of the project was uh, what your kind of thinking was going into that project from from less the creative side and more let's say the the business side of that particular so how project. To get there okay yeah, um, yeah well I guess technically it was my second narrative feature film but I'm, I don't really count the one I shot in high school for like 40 bucks uh, I, I guess I'm proud of it as a high schooler would be but it, you know it doesn't hold up uh, so this was um, but my first actual real attempt to do something that could sell internationally to the market uh, so what happened was in 2000, I've been making short films and music videos um, all through the early 2000s and throughout you know that period of time. And I was also simultaneously working, uh, doing um, like you know when a record label would create a commercial in the 2000s for an album, like it would be like Seal Four. Well, I make those commercials for like Warner and Rhino and uh, Universal and all these companies uh, through a third-party post company called Creative Forces. Um, so I was doing all this sort of thing. Uh, and I really wanted to get into feature production, so you know. I, but I was working sort of the music industry side of things. I even had a band for a while, and eventually I, I started pushing myself into feature films. Um, so I started going to AFM uh, because I made a short film called The Ending the Eternal that I then wanted to turn into a feature film called The Eternal, and I had a lot of bad advice early on. But I went to AFM to try to start to learn how the sales world works, and so I took The Eternal to AFM in 2008. Uh, and we actually got kind of lucky. We had some companies on board that were, we were halfway to 2.5 million. Um, but I was such a green producer and the recession had hit the industry right at that point. Mm-hmm. And everything just fell to fucking hell. Like, can I swear on your podcast? You can. I, I know, okay. Liberally in fact. <laughs> Yeah, we, we had, uh, we had people who were at the table step away from the table because they all, they just scaled back all their production because, you know, the bottom fell out of the industry. So, uh, I decided, um, a few things were holding me back with the Eternal and making it so that I didn't have the power to actually create this movie the way I wanted to create it. And one of it was I didn't have a feature film under my belt. And I realized the way that the AFM sales uh, environment is, 
Um, you know, if you're there with a feature, you get a lot more meetings. Um, you could potentially make some money and people will start to notice you. And it doesn't even have to be the best movie in the world and it doesn't even have to cost that much. But as long as you've got a feature under your belt, um, people open their doors to you. So what I did was I set out to make The Collapse for very, very little money um, in 2010. Uh, like $40,000 up front Canadian was what I, I shot it for. Um, and the idea was just to make a calling card feature. So I went to AFM in, in 2010. Uh, so I, I guess it was 2009 I went to AFM the first time. And in 2010, I went to AFM the second time with this feature, which had been cut. So basically I shot it, AFM's in November, so I shot it um, in August, uh, late July, and or sorry, in August into early September um, in 2010 had a rough cut done in time for AFM in the beginning of November um, and that's what how far the 40,000 got me because I work in post so I already had all the editing stuff so I was able to get it in the can completely non-union then I went to AFM to sell it and uh, funnily enough my I found my sales agents out of that AFM mm -hmm. but they were local boys they were, it was Raven Banner when, when Raven Banner first started up so um, a little bit of history there uh, in 2010 that was about six months into their initial operation as a company so Mike uh, left Cinema Vault. He went to Raven Manor, started Raven Manor, and they, yeah, at the time they only had about you know 10, 12 titles, and I was one of the stronger titles they picked up in that earlier sort of generation of their company. So they went out and sold the movie, um, and you know for, basically the way I finished it was I had forty thousand dollars up front um, that you know I did owe back to somebody. Uh, and then we sold Japan for a certain amount of money. I took that money and started post-production. Uh, we sold another territory. I took that money and finished post-production. And all, all in all, after about a year and a half of sales and everything, uh, the, month, the actual budget ended up being, once I paid deferrals and you know all that sort of thing, was like $107,000. But it did, you know, its gross with actual distributors was like more like a million. And then what I saw was a pretty sizable chunk too. So I was able to pay out like a good amount of back end to my crew and. It, it was a success on a financial level. It's critically, it's about 60% positive, 40% right. negative, but it's, it's not a, like, you don't go out making a $40,000 movie that you wrote way too fast and, and expect it to set the world on fire, right? So no, no. I, I but, feel like I've learned from that point. Yeah, I, I think yeah. the story here, which is, yeah. is really interesting, is that this is, and for many people who are listening to this to this podcast, who are in that place where they're willing to take the deep dive into their their first feature film, and they're trying to figure mm -hmm. out, okay, how should I do it? How should I think about the market? How should I think about uh, monetizing their film? These yeah. are all those kind of first-time producerial questions that you have to ask going in. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you were asking those questions uh, before you made the film. You, you made the film on a modest budget, which uh, I always encourage somebody to do, which today, in today's day and age, if you can make something and you're passionate about it and, you know, they're in, in the circumstance where you're approaching it from that genre perspective, you've got that, that, that bona fide sort of sales interest there. It's like, don't spend the world trying to knock it out of the park, as you said. Just make the damn thing. Yeah, exactly. Especially as your first film. Um, after that, I could feel, I feel, you know, like your first film, you get away with that because you're just cutting your teeth and you're, you're announcing to the world, here's me, I've got some potential. Not, this is not fully recognized potential yet, but you know, you forgive that first film. Um, in a way, you're sort of asking the audience that. The second film, however, you can't fuck around with. You could just go out and shoot it if you want to. Uh, you can do that, the same thing you did on your first film, but I feel like you're under, under much more, um, focus critical eye and industry eye on the second film. They want to see you step up. So it, 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 it's almost like it's better to wait a little for your second film so you've got just enough money to be able to really do what you want to do. 
um, or at least enough time to be able to pull. Like, there's money works in two ways, right? You can either have enough money to be able to have the crew for the amount of time you need, do the right amount of pre-production, the right amount of development, and have like your script ready and everything good to go. Or you can put in enough time to, uh, at, but on at less money um, with like your friends and volunteers or whatever to have something really special. But that sometimes takes forever, and you you can't you can't expect that of your friends all the time, especially if it's your second film. So I I, I always feel like the second film is, is the one where you have to like start not play by the rules, but start realizing that you know you need to be able to show people what you can really do with a real, not even a real budget, but something more. Um, right now, now, when you took the film out, uh, just just to kind yeah. of close the circle on that first example that you gave for your sure. first film, when you took the film out, was there an expectation that you would be doing the kind of sales that you landed up doing, or was that? Oh no, no, not at all. I uh, not even close. I I was I just thought it would get out there with some like low rung boutique distributor, and it would be in the DVD market, like because this wasn't my first film to get distribution either. I had one before that, a documentary called Working Class Rockstar that. Uh, uh, Cinema Epoch picked up, which is a Koch company, and then Koch got bought by E1, and it got kind of buried in release, but it's out there. Um, so I'd kind of been through the, the I figured that's what was going to happen to the collapse, that, you know, I was probably not going to see my money back, or if I did, it would be, you know, minimal. <clears throat> but what really threw me, or what really made me think differently, was that um, as soon as Japan sold and then Super Channel bought it, I went, oh, okay, I've already made my money back, basically. So it, it kind of rolled from there. One second, sorry. Uh, picked up a bit of cough and can. Um, we're gonna so, get to can. Uh, we're we're gonna get there. Uh, you know, I, I, stop I'm stop bringing up shit up. early, man. Stop bringing it up early. Sorry, dude. Not there I, yet. I, I, I was joking. using it. Uh, <laughs> I'm just um, joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. But, uh, uh, but no. What, yeah. Anyway, what I was, I was I was trying to say was I yeah I had no clue. In fact, yeah. um, before I signed with Anchor Bay, there was a totally different company that was going to sign the film, and they went under, out of business like midway through the contracting stage. So. It was fortuitous that that happened because then I ended up in a, in a pretty good deal with Anchor Bay that um, we can discuss the, the, some particulars of, but I can't really. Uh, and, uh, it, yeah, the rest is kind of history. It did really well. So, and I just want to be clear for those who are listening, The Collapsed is a low-budget horror thriller, and yeah. it is made without any bankable stars so None just the idea yeah so but the the idea here is that you can go out make a movie collaborate with friends and people get that first one on, under your belt and that that kind of a movie if made properly and with the right i guess market awareness can make money not that you're necessarily making a movie just because the you know you, otherwise these things obviously that's you know, so, um, can become derivative and all that kind of stuff but anyway yeah go ahead I wouldn't call the collapse a movie that I went in with friends. Like I was very active in making sure I had the best crew I could get, the best DP. I actually did auditions for the. Like it wasn't just like you're perfect for this role. I actually did a bunch of auditioning, and you know some of the critics may, and even myself. Like it's bad performances are not always the um, actor's fault. Sometimes it's the scenario of the set and how fast you have to move, and sometimes it's directorial and sometimes it's script. But whatever like flaws the film has. Um, we still tried very actively to avoid those, so we did actually do auditioning, and I brought my lead in from Seattle. Even he, he's oh, wow. not union, but, yeah, yeah. but I actually brought in a lead, like I brought the best guy who auditioned. I didn't um, just pick someone local who I knew could be here. I, I like we flew him in. Well, he, 
you know, he, he came in, we put him up, or he put himself up, I think. Um, but, we, you know, we paid everybody. Uh, it was a professional set. They just weren't being paid, like, crazy union rates. Right, so right. So that's the distinction I want to make. Like, Fair I, enough. Everybody got paid, and everybody was a professional. Yeah, and fantastic. Was, yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so then just, I guess, uh, because you, you, you kind of opened the box a little bit, what can you tell us about distribution contracts, uh, about the things that people, generally speaking, should be looking for uh, when it comes to... Uh, the deal side of their film, uh, and just whatever you feel comfortable that you uh, sure. knowledge that you can pass on I mean, to people who are listening. This is a really big, big topic, right? But um, I, I, I look back to so when I was doing my first documentary, uh, Working Class Rockstar, I, I interviewed Frank Marino, uh, who is like uh, he's like Canada's Jimi Hendrix, larger guitar player. He had this band called Mahogany Rush in the '60s and '70s. And uh, he went through a long conversation about, you know, contracting in the record industry. And um, it was something he said really always stuck with me, and it's that it doesn't matter what the deal says on paper, it's the spirit of the deal that matters. So um, there's lots of deal structures out there. There are lots of things that will either net you money or will not. And I'll go in through, through some of that stuff. But most importantly is the person on the other side of the table who's presenting the deal to you. So you need to know if they're reputable because it, the deal could be the best thing in the world, but if they're not going to pay you and you have to chase them in court or you're unable to collect from them, it, it means nothing. So you need to be able to work with, it, it's, really, it's, a, it's a business of people, so you need to be able to find the right people or you're going to get, pardon my French, fucked in the ass. Uh, <laughs> or maybe in a, in a less um, crass way, you're really going to get screwed over. Um, so that's the first thing to keep in mind is you need to find someone trustworthy. Uh, and that's hard to find. Um, not everybody is going to account. Not everybody is going to actually pay you, or, or they'll bury you in expenses. So, okay, I guess the thing to start to, to know right off the bat is there's a whole bunch of different types of deals. Um, some of them offer MGs, which is a minimum guarantee. So basically, let's say someone wants to distribute you in the United States, and you've got a, a film that costs X amount of dollars. And they say, okay, we'll distribute you in the U.S. Uh, we'll give you an MG, a minimum guarantee of $50,000 uh, against your sales. Mm -hmm. Now, one second. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, sorry, they'll give, I had another call. So they'll give you, um, you know, a minimum of $50,000 against sales in the United States. They cut you a check for $50,000, or usually it's several checks because they pay out in tiers. It'll be, like, you know, upon signature, upon delivery of your materials, upon release date. They'll do, like years yep so they, they pay you for 50 50 grand or whatever it happens to be and and if it's a good company you'll see more money than that where because you're that's all that is is an advance against your sales so and and if your contract states that they, you, they've got a cap on your expenses or, or whatever if it's a really good company you'll see more money than the 50 grand that's your initial amount of money that they'll pay you if it's not such a great company or if the movie the title doesn't do very well which is common now um, that's all you'll ever see so uh, sometimes it's good to push for an MG. The other way to do it is you do a straight rev share deal, where the distributor pays you nothing up front. And a lot of people really try to avoid these deals because um, with a lot of companies, you'll never see a cent. Um, but with the right companies, uh, and I would say Anchor Bay is one of the right companies, um, you could take a straight rev share deal and walk out with a big check. It might take you a year and a half to see it, but, um, but with the right structure, and this is something, again, talk to an entertainment lawyer, not me, but with the right deal structure um, on, on something where you you basically sign a deal that says, you know, you keep 80% of sales, they keep 20% of sales, or whatever it is, after expenses. So if it costs them 300 grand to put the title out, do all the artwork, send copies to the store, whatever it is, um, you keep 80% of all the profit past that 
what they spend, mm-hmm. right? Whatever their expenses are. <clears throat> and that's the deal I had with the collapsed, and it did quite well. So um, uh, I, can you talk about then, like, when it comes to expense line items? Because this is one of those things where a lot of people can get yeah. tripped up uh, in terms of whether it be a percentage of gross, uh, a fixed amount, uh, something mm-hmm. that is kind of a rolling amount well, based okay, on an adjusted so gross. there's tons of expenses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's tons of them. Um, but it, it comes down to, uh, you know, depends on also what customer deal you're signing. So if you're signing with a sales agent, for example, um, and all they're doing is taking your title and trying to resell it to other territories. So they go to the market, they go to Cannes, they go to AFM, they go to Berlin, and they go to MIPCOM, all these markets. Um, if they're a sales agent, their expenses usually mean the cost of their, part of the cost of them, say, setting up a, of a booth, uh, cost of them going out to dinner, cost of their airfare, basically the expenses that it takes for them to go out and actively try and push your film to the right people. And, and it does cost. Cost of, it, you know, faxes or, you know, it, it's 2015, I don't want to say faxes, but they still happen. Um, you know, couriers, all that sort of thing. Cost of screeners. What, you know, that's your expenses on a sales agent side of things. And um, a good company, some, okay, so some companies will have really high expense caps. Like, I've seen companies where they put $75,000 worth of expenses, which basically means you are not going to see a cent until that $75,000 is paid off. Uh, or I've seen companies that have five to ten thousand dollars, which to me seems more reasonable. But it depends on the size of the company and the size of your film, and all these. There's a lot of factors. Mm-hmm. So that's that's sales agent. Distributor expenses are that's a giant deep 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 quagmire of a hole. Um, but really, what it boils down to is uh, cost of any insurance that the distributor may need to pay because most filmmakers have E&O, but some distributors have, you know, errors in emissions insurance in case someone makes a claim against your film. Uh, the film needs that for it to be released. Um, some distributors have a blanket E&O policy for all the films on their on their roster, so there's a cost to that. That may, A small amount of that might end up on your file. The cost of manufacturing and authoring your discs, your physical media, so, you know, if it costs ten grand to create a Blu-ray and a DVD, you know, I'm just ballparking here, that may be um, on your your return sheet, uh, the cost of sending these copies to the stores. If they send 15,000 copies to Walmart and it costs X amount to courier all that and it costs X amount to create those copies, um, that's something you're going to have to pay for. Um, if Walmart, after Planogram, after four, after four weeks, um, decides to send your, put your movie in a warehouse or send your movie back, um, or after six months decides to do that, there's cost involved in that. Um, there's cost of making trailers, cost of publicity. That's all your expenses, right? So after expenses is when you start to see a flip. Um, <clears throat> something I guess people should keep in mind is if you're on a straight revenue share thing, and let's say you've got your title put out and it's a bigger company and they put it in Walmart or all the red boxes or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, Walmart specifically, a place where people actually have to physically buy the disc, right? So let's say they send 15, 20,000 copies to Walmart, okay? A larger company has something called a return hold. And what a return hold is, is they're expecting out of those 15, 20,000 copies to get 8,000 of them back or more or less, you know, around, they're going to get a big chunk of those copies back after six months. So what they have to do is hold back a certain amount of money that says, okay, this is the guarantee against those copies we know are coming back because chances are we're going to have to refund, you know, whatever, whatever we thought we were getting from Walmart, it's going to be this much less, so we need to put this money aside. So that, that'll be on your account, and it'll, it'll void after, say, 15 months or however long it takes for it to go through the Walmart system. Yeah. So I know this is really complicated. But no, no, but, you know, people always get tripped up on some of this stuff, and you're, and you're, and you're covering a lot of really good ground, so please, yeah, yeah. Can, keep so, um, going on. And there, there's, there's lots of other things, too. Um, anyway, it, things add up, and all the ancillaries have, have uh, cost, too. So uh, even, even if a a distribution company has a deal, say, with iTunes or PSN Network or Xbox, 
there's still um, compression costs and placement costs and things that, so all the way down the line, there's little bits of cost to make these things go out across all these networks and in and, and different stores and whatever else. And all of that gets put against the filmmaker and the filmmaker's advance and all of that sort of thing. So if you're, let's say your title grosses a million bucks, chances are your expenses were four or five hundred thousand and out of that you get eighty percent of that. So that's kind of how the return sheet would, would look on, on with most major distributors. Uh, major independent distributors rather. Right. Like um it, I'm sure studio as a whole you know, everybody's return sheet's gonna look different and costs get inflated with every company I'm sure. Or not inflated but you know, they have a baseline where they're like, Okay, this is what this costs and if they get a deal then great. That's not you know, that's not the deal that goes on your your account. That's the deal that they, as a company, got, and they're allowed to get those deals, you know? Yeah, and it's important for people here who are getting return sheets, uh, yeah. especially for the first time, if they never looked at one of these, or if they never looked at mm-hmm. one of these for their own film. Uh, yep. You know, you, you can go out and get a third-party opinions audits. on, and uh, yeah. not only audits, but only opinions on whether or not you should go in an audit, because you're going to look at these things and they're going to look sideways. You're going to see negative $700,000 when the thing made $4 million and you're going to be, what the hell is all this stuff? And it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. Oh, it took me a long time to figure out how to read a return sheet properly. Like, uh, and I, I, my mom's an accountant and I've been helping do my taxes and like I've done CAPCO applications and OMB, OFRB applications, or sorry, um, Never ask, an, never ask an accountant to read a return sheet in the film business. <laughs> yeah, it exactly. doesn't, doesn't make, make sense. sense. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but yeah, it's all, it all looks like Greek. Um, but again, it's, you know, that's, that's sort of, there's a lot of expenses that you deal with when it comes to distribution. Um, but again, this topic I could talk for, for hours, like, and, and it would, I'd probably never run out of things to say. No, I know. It uh, just goes on and on. Let me actually ask you something else because and I, 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 there's a few other things that I definitely want to, want to get to uh, on the, with the time that we have with you here today. Uh, one of which is you just made a documentary uh, film, uh, I believe, called Clapboard Jungle. I'm still making it. You're, yeah. Okay, sorry. It's, it, it hasn't come out. You're, you're, you're in the process of making it where you are uh, interviewing a bunch of industry people and you're kind of putting that together. Can you just talk a little bit about what that project is and not to spend too much time necessarily on that topic per se but what i really want is for you to tease out maybe some of the things that you've learned so far in the process of making that film because it is so industry specific and you're getting i would say you know that 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 really uh behind closed doors peek at what the industry is really like so just tell tell people first about what the project is and what you're kind of teasing out of it thus far sure so the project has changed and moved around a bit uh since i first started shooting it um so basically how it happened was early last year, uh, early 2014, like January, I was I was thinking about it a little earlier, but I really decided around early January, wanted to, make, to shoot something that um, would cost very little money and I could just sort of pay for it out of pocket and gradually make. And that's sort of how I did my last two documentaries. So I bought some gear and I, I've been shooting, and I, I started by just turning the camera on myself and sort of following a light, day in the life of a filmmaker for a while. Um, and, and after a while I realized, you know, you can't really direct a movie about yourself because it's fucking incredibly, um, I, I don't want to call it vain because it wasn't, it was never going to be presented like that. I was going to have other editors to make me look not, um, like, like it wasn't a pop piece or anything like that. So, um, after a while, after a month or two, I decided, you know what, this is a bigger story. And if I start getting a bunch of interviews, then I can, um, you know, I can encapsulate this larger idea of what it means to be a filmmaker nowadays and how do you survive in this industry and, and all, all these different angles. So I started going out and getting interviews. And at this point now, I've done about 80. 
uh, and with people all over the industry, you know, George Romero, Abby Lerner, uh, you, you know, uh, the list is gigantic. I interviewed you guys. Um, I've interviewed. Oh yeah. That, the, the, there you the go. Lowest level, That'll make the people level. buy the thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I mean like from like the lowest level to the highest level and, and actors and, and, you know, uh, people in distribution, entertainment lawyers, I've, you know, I've, I've collected a ridiculous number of interview hours at this point. So it's kind of grown because you can only fit so much in a feature film. So my goal now is, and I continue to shoot myself too through a year and a, I've been shooting myself for over a year and a half now and the stuff I've been involved with and the crews and all that. It, it's all, I've got footage of it all over the fucking place. Um, you know, on all these markets I go to and the festival wor- world and basically anything I do, I've, I've sometimes got a camera running on me. And I, will I use most of this footage? Probably not. But what I'm going to do is make it into something bigger than that. So there's the film, which will just be the film. It's a standalone feature film with a lot of information in it, but uh, it's also, it's meant to be both educational and entertaining, so it's it's also, it's from an emotional standpoint as well. So I don't want to um, say that it's just going to be a bunch of talking heads uh, explaining, this is how you become a filmmaker, and here's how you deal with distribution. You know, there's room for that, but that comes um, in the bonus material. So the film itself uh, is going to have a lot of information, but it's also going to have a story arc. So it's, it, it is still um, sort of my path over the last couple of years uh, with everybody sort of chiming in on, on different angles and aspects of it. So it sort of flows. Um, but beyond that, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm just going to be an entirely alternate cut with no interviews and then all these different educational modules. So if you want to learn about distribution, there's a distribution module. If you want to learn about crowdfunding, there's a crowdfunding module. Uh, and then, so there'll be like a Masterclass Edition Blu-ray, uh, additional content on DVD, and then now that VHX does subscription-based stuff, um, I, I'm going to set up a subscription and have new content every mm-hmm. month, just stuff coming up endlessly, because I have endless content at this no. point, and I keep shooting more. Are, are you so, putting uh, any of this stuff out, by the way, now, just to, just to start generating? No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm still gathering it all, uh, and I need to get an overall picture before I start just drawing shit out there, because... Um, I don't want to burn an interview, and, and then, um, like, I don't want to put it in the wrong place. I'd rather have a really good plan in, in place, because uh, right now I'm just producing, I'm just shooting. I'd rather have a much bigger overarching plan in place and infrastructure, be, and then launch it on a regimented schedule, as opposed to just, like, randomly throwing stuff out there and hoping it sticks. Because mm-hmm. um, you got to really plan your press, or every, no one's going to notice a fucking thing. Um, right. Right. Even with the people I've got in it. So I like my next step is I'm doing a crowdfunding campaign. Uh, but specifically because it's a social media experiment that I can shoot for the movie to talk about crowdfunding campaign. Um, oh, that's so funny. I don't, yeah, very I don't raise, meta. Yeah. Yeah. Very even meta. if I don't yeah. raise the money, um, I'm already talking, I'm, I'm talking to creators who've been successful. I've got people from Indiegogo already in the film. Uh, Kickstarter's recommended a bunch of people I should talk to. And we're going to do like a overall, and this is just the module, right? There'll be a small part of the film that'll have crowdfunding in it, but there'll be a much larger module where people who raised like hundreds of thousands of dollars can talk about, this is how we did it, and this is how much work it took, and this is what our back end was like, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's cool. a big overarching thing. Yeah, that's uh, really neat. That's really neat. And, and you wanted to know what I've learned. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, well, I, I, you know, did, is there any consistent theme that people are talking about right now? Uh, that you're hearing. Um, well, I mean, everybody is, is sort of right, like raises the banner for do it yourself nowadays. Um, I, you talk to the larger guys, and they're still very much, and the people who've been in it forever, they're still very much their old old structure works, which it does for them. 
um, where they, they, you know, they, they're able to green light stuff based on cast and crew and, and, uh, you know, their director and they've just got a coffer of money they can go to when, when they've got all those things in place and the money just says yes. And that, that all still exists and that's great, uh, for people on that level. But I think on the lower level, uh, there's a whole attitude right now of, this is not going to sustain itself. There's, the money is dwindling, and um, where the real money is 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 it creator-driven stuff, creator-driven sales. Um, you know, not so much crowdfunding, but uh, sort of direct sale to your audience. Um, and if they're using a crowdfunding platform to get there, then that's a whole other other ballgame. And and um, I've noticed that a lot. Uh, another thing I've noticed is a lot of uncertainty, um, simply because you know. Uh, home video, but this is all stuff that you know won't, won't be timely in five years. But um, right now is there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the physical media um, sales are, are dwindling. VOD is not really covering the spread yet, but it's doing well for some films. Um, SVOD things like Netflix and Hulu are great, but they're not paying what they what people expect uh, for indie content because they're making so much of their own content. Um, so everything's just changing. Uh, but honestly, it's such a giant, giant um, topic that I, I would literally need to sit down and, and start. Um, and I haven't done this yet. I've, I've been taking notes as I've been shooting, and I but start connecting all the dots. You know, yeah, and that's yeah. something I haven't really done yet. Um, well, I've got, well yeah. I've got dots everywhere. I just haven't drawn lines between them. Uh, I want to see that picture when you're done. Yeah, it's gonna be like sure. like a scattergram or uh, yeah, point, pointillism. Yeah, point, pointillism well, in film. Again, it's a giant one. One of those or that early piece of advice people gave me in with documentary was like, don't pick a topic that's too big. And I did, but I'm, that's why it's not just one film. And it's it's uh, it's 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 what I wish existed eight years ago for, and it and does exist now. There's other sites that do it. Film Riot and Film Courage and all these sites do these cool little interviews. You guys you know, do this interview, this interview stuff to help people. And it's all out there. I just kind of wanted to put it into an a easy-to-swallow sort of module-based system and then an easy-to-swallow feature to get people into that world. You yeah, know, no, like, I, it's but, a great idea, man. Like, and, I, uh, and I think, you know, some of the lessons and, and stuff that, that you're getting out of that is going to be not only really valuable to people, but uh, just something that people should be aware of. So that's called Clapboard Jungle. And when do you, yeah. do you have an expected... Uh, I guess release date for that yet, or well, when it's going to be done? Yeah, I, I, it's going to be in 2016. Okay. Um, editing's going to take quite a while, but uh, my like the crowdfunding I'm going to run in the next couple of months is going to target a 20, mid 2016 release date, and that's the goal. Uh, however, um, it depend it hinges on a couple things, and it, it's, it hinges on uh, one feature feature film in particular that right now uh, I need to start shooting in November. So if I shoot this new feature horror film in November, that's a really good. Um, victory to sort of close the arc of the film on. Uh, so my hope is that that happens and then I'll have a clean arc for the film and I can just cut it off uh, the story part of the film, just cut it off and, and then I can finish the film. Um, so let me, but, yeah, let me actually yeah. just, just cause we're, we're running a little bit short here and I want to get a few, I want to talk about a few more things if I may, before, yeah. uh, before I know that you have to, to bounce. Um, well, I don't have to do anything, but um, you know what I mean. Like, no, I, 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 well, I put, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to kick you off at about 45 minutes anyways, because our podcast is only okay. that, that, that long. Uh, otherwise yeah. our listeners get, you know, upset. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I can't stay forever. No. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I try to stay consistent somewhere between 40 yeah. to 40 to, to 50 minutes an episode. Um, okay. Yeah. So, okay. You went to Cannes for the first yeah. time this year. So it was your first time heading out to Cannes. Yeah. I want to know 
um, just because I think our listeners will appreciate this. Uh, for for the, for those who have never never been to Cannes, we're thinking about going to Cannes. I want you to just give our listeners a little bit of, of a taste of what a was your uh, decision point to decide to go. Uh, how did you get the most out of going to Cannes once you did decide to go? And what do you recommend when it comes to filmmakers who are thinking about going to some of these larger markets like a Berlin, a Cannes, a Toronto uh, that have a market mm-hmm. component? So I'm kind of th- I'm throwing those three questions at you because I think it's a it's a big topic, but I think it's a fun one. So go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, all right. So first of all, I wanted to go to Cannes for years. Uh, I just never really thought it was ready. Uh, I went to AFM, of course, the, those years back uh, a couple times, and that's very much like a smaller version of Cannes, except. Um, the way I look at it is, Cannes is set up like a trade show. The uh, market, the market, um, the March to Film is set up like a trade show. It's a bunch of booths. You walk a giant floor. You can walk booth to booth to booth. Whereas AFM is less of a trade show and it's more of like individual hotel rooms. So you're walking long hotel room hallways. It's less open. So you've actually, it's hard to knock on a hotel room door and be like, "Are you guys available to talk?" It's way easier to see that nobody's sitting at a booth uh, in a mid-meeting and walk up and be like, hey, this is what I do. Can we talk? And, and you get a much easier meeting at can. Um, regardless, I would say advice-wise, if you're going to go to one of these markets, first of all, go, uh, especially if you've never been to one, because you need to see how films are sold and what your competition is and just how big a world it is. And, and it's going to give you one of two reactions. One, you're going to look at all the films that are out there, how many of them you've never heard of, and how many are, are probably not selling, and go, oh, fuck. Okay, there's too much. No, no, I'm done. And then leave the industry. And the other is to uh, look at it and go, so this is my competition. This is what I need to know. These are the guys who are actually selling stuff. These are the guys who really are selling stuff. And um, after a while, you get to know a lot of people who are there, uh, which is great, because then you can pick up a phone or send an email and possibly get a deal. Um, That said... Uh, Ken, this is my first year, um, and the main motivation for me going mother of two, one of them was because of the documentary, because of me wanting to showcase these markets. I knew if I went, I'd get great footage, uh, and I, it was already always kind of part of my plan to go to either Berlin or Cannes, so I ended up going to Cannes. Uh, the second was I applied to the Producers Network, um, which you spend an extra 50 bucks, you, you apply to, for this thing called the Producers Network. Uh, the litmus for you getting in means you need to have produced uh, one feature film that played theatrically within the last five years. So I just put my information in and I got accepted. So I figured at that point, well, shit, I have to go. Um, So uh, that's why I went. Sorry, one second. That's why I went to Cannes. Um, And it was absolutely the right choice. Uh, And I'd say the producers network trying to get the most in Cannes. But you've got to be ready. You've got to have projects under your belt and have a reason to talk to people because they won't care about you if you don't have a way to either help them or you have something interesting that they want. So, like, you could take all the meetings that can you want in the world and say, oh, you know, I'm a filmmaker and I make films. And, but unless you specifically say, and here's the package for that film, and this is how, these are the attachments we've got, and here's the structure we can shoot at based out of Canada, and all, here's where we can get a great tax rate, and, uh, oh, I've noticed you produce this film. Well, we know this producer, and, you know, it, it, the more connected you are and the more, like, you have your shit together, the better you're going to do at these markets. And mm-hmm. that's, I feel like this year was a year where I had my shit together. Um, whereas maybe last year I wouldn't have had as much stuff. Uh, you know, it, it depends on a lot of timing is everything with with life in general. And in this case, I feel like I had some really great meetings that um, I wouldn't have had if I didn't put any groundwork ahead of time. 
Um, right, right, okay. And, and and so just from the, I guess, from leaving Cannes now and yep. looking back on the experience, uh, when what advice would you then give to somebody who's basically deciding whether or not they should go in the first place? Uh, you got to have a pretty good good assessment of where you are in your career. Um, I mean, I'm not saying don't go, but it's going to cost you money, right? So let's let's say you do it smart. You get an Airbnb place that's kind of cheap and a little bit out of the center of can. It's going to cost you idea. five grand. It's going to cost you like four to five grand. Cost me thirty three hundred. Oh, you did good. Yeah, I, uh, I I I found a great Airbnb place. The airfare was only nine hundred bucks return. Uh, the pass is only five hundred bucks Canadian. Um, I, it was it was not that expensive. I, I, yeah, but are you counting drinks and meals in there? Yeah, I am. I only spent dollars Canadian while I was there on on drinks and meals. Ah. And the reason for that is uh, because I was in the producers network and it, I got invited to a lot of parties. Um, They're I, giving you the free drinks. You see, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So um, it depends on who you are again, and like, can you get invites to this stuff? Because um, the producers network, you end up at breakfast seven days straight. So you've got food there, you've got drink there. I mean, I still ate my own healthy breakfast, but I went to a grocery store because I stayed in an Airbnb place because I could cook. They make the best. Do you, you, you ever go down to like the place, like those the, the, the grocery markets there in Canada, and get like the fresh yogurt and fruit? Oh yeah! How well, delicious a, is where that? Where I stayed, there was a, a farmers market where people just bring their own crops. Oh, and, so uh, good! And the cheese yeah. there, so uh-huh. delicious. Love yep, that place. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm battling European cheese right now because of Brussels and Cannes back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Look, you, yeah. You, you, the, the funny thing about going to Cannes, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but this has always been my experience. Whenever you go, it's just cheese and bread, you know, 24-7. You, cheese, you bread, cheese bread, it. cheese bread. You can get around cheese and bread. I had paella one night. <laughs> um, you can get around cheese and bread, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, it depends on where you go. I mean, this one Scandinavian Nordic uh, genre party was, was just a lot of other meat. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and, and, you know, Jagermeister to wash it down, but, uh, it's a great time regardless of what you do. Um, I would recommend if you're eligible for the producer's network and you haven't gone, you absolutely have to, uh, the way it works is you do seven days straight of morning breakfast meetings and then cocktail hours. And at the breakfast meetings, there's 16 tables and each table is, has a guest of honor, and it might be the president of Sony Pictures Classics or a top agent at WME or the head of Universal UK or whatever it, happens, whoever it might be. Um, so you pick which table you want to sit at, and then at every other person at the table, you, and they only accept 300 producers a year out of the 11,000 or so market participants. Every other producer you sit with at the table is also an established producer who may have access to money or may have a project you're interested in or any number of other things. And I think I probably collected 120 business cards of, like, I would say the top operating independent producers in the world at this moment. Right? That's fantastic. So, That's, and, and you know what? And, and those relationships are just so valuable. You can't get them anywhere, yeah. anywhere else. You can't meet these people. Unless you're in front of their face, they're not going to listen to you. And that, I, I'm the same way. Like, if you email me your script and say, I'd love to work with you, that's cool. But it, it's a much better impression if I can see you. And, I, and that's not a, a, like a, a trash of anyone. That's not like against them. It's more just, it's a personal business and there's too many crazy people. Yeah, you know, and it's also in, in information overload because people send you yeah, stuff all the too. time you get, and you, you, just, you just don't have time. You just don't have time yeah. unless you know the person, you've had lunch with them, had a broken yep. bread, 
you know, that, that that's the kind of stuff that makes all the difference. And and it sounds mm-hmm. to me like that that was the most valuable thing for you coming out of Cannes. Yeah, uh, I mean, I may yeah. have found deals for the next few movies just out of these meetings and stuff. Like it, I, I, it, it never really closed the deal on the spot, but over the next few weeks, it could happen. You yeah, know, you know, it's it, it's just. Yeah, I recommend it to anybody who feels they're ready. I, uh, if you feel you're ready, then you're ready. Right. And go. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Justin, this has been absolutely awesome. I think you've, you've really given a lot of yourself to this episode and this show. There's a lot of information here that I'm just really happy that uh, we've had the opportunity to, to share and to talk about. Uh, some of the real-world stuff, how you got started, and then kind of straight through to your first experience of Candace. It's just... I, it's just—it's kind of all there. You—you—you you, you, you see the picture of mm-hmm. your career and where it's going, and I think that 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 today—that's the kind of stuff that really matters. Is people are taking those those forward steps, and 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 you're a guy who's doing it, and so that's why well, you can't yeah. you can't just sit and wait for it to happen, right? You have to go out there and grab the bull by the horns, or yeah. you're just going to languish. You're not going to get where you want to be. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it's a it's a it's a content world, and you have to be out there making content, and you're and you're doing just that. So, uh, Justin, if people want to connect with you, uh, is there a way that you'd recommend that people reach out? Yeah, sure. I mean, you can try Facebook. I seem to add everybody for some reason. Uh, Justin McConnell, uh, StableGround.net's my company. Um, you could try emailing me, Jay McConnell at UnstableGround.net. I'm not against people emailing me. Um, that's pretty much the easiest way. Fantastic, man. Well, listen, any yep. parting words that you have for our audience uh, before we uh, call, call it a day here? Um, not really. I mean, make film. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be good film. Just make make film. Eventually, it'll be good. <laughs> That's the hope. That's good enough. <laughs> All right, yeah. man. Listen, thanks again for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. This has been fantastic. Okay. All right, man. Cheers. All right. Bye. Okay, bye.